0: Well, if you're joining us for the first time, we've been going through the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. And uh, Samuel is uh, a really important book uh, because it contains something called the Davidic covenant. We'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Um, again, this is the Davidic covenant. That's what we call it. This is this promise of God that, um, that, that David's going to have a house. David starts off by asking or telling God that he wants to build him a house. God says, no, no, I'm going to build you a house. And what he means by that is a dynasty. Um, an heir would come from David that would one day be this righteous, eternal king this, this king of kings, and, and this is this, this is powerful promise that we find in Scripture, and, and it's sort of this, this guiding force that, that, that moves us along towards the New Testament, and towards the incarnation, and towards Jesus, right? So, um, there's this, this thing we find in, in 2 Samuel 7, it's this, this hope of the promise. Now, the hope of the promise seems to be at risk when you get to chapter 11, because David, this king, commits adultery, and then to cover it up, he gets, commits murder. And so, uh, with his predecessor, Saul, when Saul committed sin against God, God took the kingdom away. And there's this question hanging over David's head, well, will God take the kingdom away? Chapter 12, um, God confronts David through the prophet uh, Nathan of of his sin, and and David repents. And, uh, and, And what we see God saying to David there is, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Lord's put away your sin. He set it aside. You're still going to be king. You're still going to be uh, an anointed one. That's, uh, that's another term for Messiah. David was a type of Messiah that, toward, that points us towards, towards Jesus. But God says, You're still my man for this particular job. You're still going to be king. However, there's going to be consequences, there's going to be a curse. And so 2 Samuel 7, the promise of that is held in tension now with the curse of Second Samuel 12, where God says, the sword shall never depart from your house. In chapter 7, God is saying, I'm going to give you a house. I'm going to give you this dynasty. But now because of this sin, there's a sword and it's never going to leave your house. Like here's this house, that's a picture of life, but here's this sword, which is a picture of, of death. And these two things are gonna be held in tension. And the curse goes on. God says to him, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. So the first part of that curse, this, this sword, that never will depart. That's, there's no insight for David in regards to that aspect of the curse. However, the second aspect of the curse, we're going to see it fulfilled today at the end of chapter 16. We'll see that part fulfilled. Um, but, but where we've been at is uh, uh, David's sin as a result of that. Uh, there's repentance, but um, his firstborn Amnon. Uh, uh, sexually assaults one of his daughters. Uh, her uh, brother Absalom retaliates, commits murder against Amnon. He flees to another country, and then through a series of manipulative circumstances, Absalom comes back, um, but he's still not allowed to see David. Uh, through more manipulative circumstances, they finally meet together after years, and there's, there's no confrontation. Uh, there's no admittance of guilt. There's, there's no forgiveness. There's no there's no repentance, there's no reconciliation, and what you have there is just, just cheap peace. Like they just, the, these two individuals, they're just sweeping it all underneath the rug and pretending like it didn't even happen, and from there, Absalom goes out and he begins to lead his insurrection. He looks at his father and he sees the kind of leader that his dad is, and last week we talked about this question. What do you do when you're under the authority or under the leadership of somebody you don't trust or somebody you can't respect? What do you do when you're under the authority of somebody who's sinful and fallen and broken? How do you respond to that? And we watched as, as Absalom's response was, well, I'll be the better king. I'll supplant. I'll form my team and go against. I'll, I'll be the better king. I'll lead the insurrection. That's one kind of response that you can have to leadership that you don't respect or don't trust. Another response could be leaving. We talked about the legitimacy of that, that sometimes it is necessary to leave the context of that, that leadership structure in order to preserve yourself, in order to preserve your heart, preserve your life like David did under Saul or like David did last week when he left Jerusalem to Absalom. Sometimes it's necessary to leave. But the third response is that of Jesus, that the Son of God comes, Son of God, Son of David, fully man, fully God comes, live the righteous life that David couldn't live, right? But he was born under authority, He was born small. He was born weak. He was born under the the religious authority of the day, which was corrupt. And he was born under the political authority of the day, which was corrupt. And this Jesus, this Messiah, he didn't do what people thought that he would do and lead an insurrection and overthrow it. Instead, he submitted to it. He allowed himself to be arrested, tried, convicted, condemned, killed under a leadership structure he didn't trust and he didn't respect. But he did it all because he saw a greater plan at work. Because he saw saw the kingdom of God. Because he saw the plan of redemption. And was participating in that. And so the question for us is when we look at Jesus and we look at those sinful fallen leaders, will we respond like Jesus did? Will we see a greater kingdom and submit to earthly authority even though it's fallen and broken? It's interesting, and I, and I pointed this out last week, that uh, God never tells us to respect or trust human authority. We're supposed to respect and trust him. So if last week was about asking that question, uh, how do you follow broken, sinful leaders, then this week is about asking the reverse question, how do you lead fallen and broken people? And the foundation has to be, as we talked about last week, it has to be this, this understanding that we are both at once two things. We are both at once deeply, deeply fallen, broken, sinful people, and yet at the same time deeply loved by God, so much so that he sent his son to die to redeem us, and so that applies to both follower and leader. Leaders are fallen, broken, sinful people. Followers are fallen, broken, sinful people. We looked at that last week, and and so as we, we, we turn back to, to the passages this week, we're going to be uh, in 2 Samuel 15, we'll start in verse 16, and, and we're going to watch David, he's, he's wrestling with this tension, he's under the weight of, uh, of this, uh, the, this, this curse, uh, he's bearing under the weight of it while he's looking for and clinging towards the promise that is yet to come. Um, and so uh, if you'll turn there, 2 Samuel 15, verse 16, uh, Absalom's response was to look at his father say, I can't trust you, I can't respect you, so I'm going to lead an insurrection. He, uh, he steals the hearts and minds of the people. He goes to Hebron, anoints himself as king, gathers his team together and marches on Jerusalem, and David takes his family and leaves, and that's where we pick up the story, verse 16. So the king went out, and all his household after him, and the king left 10 concubines to keep the house. Uh, so David, he takes his, uh, his wives, those he designates as wives, and leaves 10 concubines behind. Uh, To be clear in God's eyes, they're also his wives. Uh, But he decides to leave them behind to take care of the house. Maybe he's more concerned about that than he is about uh, them. Uh, But remember, David, uh, he may be forgiven, but he's still fallen. He may be forgiven, but he's he's still sinful, right? And and we we look at David through the story of, of Samuel. We ask the question, is David a good guy or a bad guy? And the question is yes, right? He's fallen, broken, sinful, yet deeply loved by God. Is he a good guy or a bad guy? Yes. When you look in the mirror, are you a good guy or a bad guy? Yes, to be clear, right? Like, uh, so, so David, he, he makes uh, the, the choice to, to, to leave these women behind. Verse 18, and all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Now what's interesting, these guys are all Philistines, uh, these are um, uh, uh, members of a nation that is against Israel, that have been fighting with Israel for a long time. You remember Goliath was a Philistine. Goliath was from Gath. Like, there are, are relatives of Goliath, that big giant that David killed, now following David. Okay? Now, uh, we, we, we meet a guy named Itai here. Itai has newly uh, come over to, to, to David's side. And, uh, and David pulls him aside and says, hey, thanks for, for being willing to follow me. But hey, you're new around here. Things are really falling to pieces. Maybe you've picked the wrong side. Maybe you should go back to Jerusalem. If you, if you hang out with me, you're liable to get killed. And Itai's response to that is this. As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life. Life, there also will your servant be. He say, "I'm with you. I'm with you." And see, um, this sort of fits into there's this or, overall theme that you find within Scripture that from the very beginning, God's desire has been to save the entire world, not just one people group. He uses one people group in order to save everybody. That, that God says to Abraham, "I'm going to bless you in order for you to be a blessing." And Jesus talks about the fact that the descendants, the true descendants of Abraham, are not just descendants by blood or genealogy, but they're people who obey God. And here's some Philistines obeying God. This is underscored here as part of that, that larger theme. But, um, but what, essentially what we see in, in the thigh is he, he, he's a grace of God to David. Here David is, he's under the weight of this curse curse which he deserves because of his sin, but here God in his grace gives him somebody to help bear the weight of that. And Etai will will come in handy as we we see in chapter 18. But um, he's not alone. Uh, Then we see uh, two guys named Abiathar and Zadok. Uh, These guys are priests. And when David leaves, they decide, well, let's take the ark and let's follow David. They take the Ark of the Covenant out and they follow David. And, uh, and this, this was normal. Like when, when the king of Israel goes out to, to, to fight a battle, uh, the Ark would often go uh, with them. Um, and and ten, uh, sometimes we see that, that the Ark is, is kind of used like a good luck charm. Like people think, well, because we have the, the Ark of the Covenant with us, that means that God is with us. And Sometimes they were wrong. But here's Apiathar and Zadok, and They believe that God is on David's side and so they take the ark and they follow David. And David says, "Well, hold on, I'll take it back. Um, 25, carry the ark of the God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he'll bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. See, David's not gonna use the ark Uh, as to say, God's on my side, because I have the ark, God's on my side. David doesn't know if God's on his side. In fact, David, he's he's holding his future with open hands at this point. He's actually actually willing that God should take away his kingdom and give it away to Absalom, if that should be God's will. And if you think about it, uh, that wouldn't break the covenant promise. Absalom was a son of David, who the Messiah and Christ could come through him if God chose that to be the path. David, he's holding his future, he's holding his reign and his authority in an open hand. Maybe God's not with him, he thinks. Um, But here's Abiathar and Zadok, and there's two more people that are there to to help David, help bear the weight of the the curse that he's he's under. And then we see David at the end of chapter 15, he's walking out of Jerusalem, and he's walking up the, the Mount of Olives. And his head is covered and he's weeping the whole way, and he's not wearing any sandals on his feet. And that's when he gets the worst news of all that Ahithophel, his friend, his counselor, has betrayed him. He's gone over to Absalom's side. He gets the the worst news of all. And then here, finally, after all this time in this section, finally somebody prays. Finally, God is included. And David offers up this very simple prayer in verse 31. Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Finally, somebody's praying and including God. And God answers. Almost immediately, David looks up, and there's Hushai. Another friend, another, another counselor of his, and he's standing in the road, and, and, and he's there to help David and help bear up under this, this burden of the curse. And so David tells him, I want you to go back. Instead of, I don't need you with me here, I need you in Jerusalem. I want you to go to Absalom, and I want you to pretend like you've defected, pretend like you're on his team, ingratiate yourself to him so that you can counter Ahithophel's counsel. We'll see that next week. But here's another person, a fourth person who's helping David bear up underneath this weight. Then we get into chapter 16. And almost everybody we meet there is not pro-David, they're against David. And they're not going to help him, they're going to try to hurt him. They're going to add more weight to what's going on. Verse 1, when David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba the servant of Mephibosheth met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisin, 100 of summer fruit, and a skin of wine. Now, this seems positive, right? Here's somebody who's bringing provision. It seems like a good thing, um, but it's not. And you kind of have to read between the lines and remember where we've been. In in, in chapter nine, uh, David, he's at the height of his uh, career as king. He's at his best, okay? And he looks around at all the blessings that God has given him, and he asks the question, who should I show the loving kindness of God to? I've been blessed, I want to bless others. So who can I show the loving kindness of God to? And they said, well, here's a guy named Mephibosheth. Um, he's, a, he's a grandson of Saul. He's crippled in his feet. An accident happened to him when he was very, very young. As a result, he's destitute. He's got nothing, no name, no money, no nothing. And David says, I'll take care of him. And he brings him into his house. He gives him a seat at his table. More than that, he restores his grandfather's wealth to him, Saul's wealth. And uh, he restores his name. And, uh, and he looks at Ziba, who was his grandfather's servant, Saul's servant. And he says, now you're Mephibosheth's servant. Now, this had to be a blow to Ziva because uh, when there was nobody to assume Saul's place, he just took over Saul's household. He started running it like it was was his own. And so now all of a sudden, after all these years, maybe a decade or more, he's he's owned this property and he's become quite wealthy, utilizing. Now David's saying, okay, uh, give it to Mephibosheth and work for him. So here in chapter 16, he shows up with all this provision for David, and you think it's a good thing, but then what he says to David is, Mephibosheth, uh, he's actually not for you. And, and I came, but, but he stayed because he's hoping, um, and this is an incredible, incredible lie, he's hoping that Absalom will take the kingdom from you and then give it to him, because he's the hereditary heir of Saul. But, but, but what he's essentially doing, he's adding more on to David's burden by saying, here's one more person who hates you. Here's one more person who's against you. Here's one more person who's out to get you. Then we, we meet a lovely man named Shimei. Verse 5. When King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, And as he came, he cursed continually and he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you for you are a man of blood. So here comes Shimei, and he starts throwing stuff at David. And he starts cursing him. davids he's already bearing up under the way of the curse of, of, of God because of his sin. And now here's somebody else adding more. He's cursing David. And, and the words there where, or he says, you man of blood, you worthless man. Uh, in the original language, it actually is, is more like, you bloodstained fiend of hell. You bloodstained fiend of hell. And he's throwing rocks at David. And, and then, to, to make matters worse, he accuses David of, of murdering Saul, Abner, Ishbosheth, people within the house of Saul, and then stealing the throne away from the house of Saul and claiming it as his own. In other words, you're a murderer and you've usurped, usurped power that doesn't belong to you. Now, if you remember from earlier on in the story, David wasn't responsible for killing Saul or Abner or Ishbosheth. He had nothing to do with any of those crimes or murders. And God had given him the kingdom. So he is, he's guiltless of what he's being accused of by Shimei. However, he's not maintaining his innocence. He knows he's guilty of other stuff. And so this is why David responds. Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now? May this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse. For the Lord has told him to, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. He may not be guilty of what Shemi is accusing of him, but David knows the guilt on his head. He's bearing up under the weight of of this curse. He's allowing this individual to insult him. Even going so far as to say, this insult may be even coming from God. You see, he's he's holding all of this with an open hand. He he, he believes that he he was made king by God, but he believes God can take this away. Though he has hope, God will redeem it. Um, look at verse 9. Then we, then we meet somebody else who, who adds to the burden. Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? Um, Abishai and his brother Joab are the sons of Zariah, and we've seen them throughout the Surah of Abner. But these are two individuals who, I think the best way to describe them, um, uh, m- my father-in-law is a, is a big fan of, of Bruce, Bruce, excuse me, Bruce Willis movies, uh, because in general, Bruce Willis movies are uh, movies in which he kills lots of people. And um, I, I think it was, I heard a quote this, this week from... Uh, uh, from Die Hard 3, the one with Samuel L. Jackson. You know the one I'm talking about. And uh, the, the the two characters, like, they get split up, and Samuel L. Jackson, yeah, he's, he's looking for, uh, for John McClain, and he's asking himself, what would John McClain do in this situation? He's like, oh, I, I know. He'd kill everybody, right? So if you're wondering what Abishai or what Joab would do in given a situation, well, they just kill everybody. That's why Abishai's like, I'll go take off his head for you. Uh, Abishai was with David when... Um, uh, before David was king, Saul was still king, and David was on the run from his life. Like, uh, Saul's out to kill him, and, uh, and, and they sneak in, David and Abishai, into Saul's camp, and Saul's sleeping, and Abishai picks up a, a spear, and he's going to kill Saul, and David stops him. He says, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? See, David understood something, that the throne of God, like the, the leadership, the kingdom of Israel... It was God's to give. It was not man's to take away. It didn't matter that that David had already been anointed king. He was to wait. He was to allow God to do the work. God is the one who sets up kings. God is the one who takes down kings. He would not raise his hand against Saul. He would allow God to remove Saul and give him the kingdom. Absalom is doing just the opposite to him. And David is once again holding his reign with open hands, saying, If God wants Absalom to rule, then okay. Well, chapter 16 continues and uh, it it sort of pans to a different scene, and we see Absalom going into the city of Jerusalem. And he goes in completely uh, unopposed, nobody dies. He just walks right into the city of Jerusalem and it's now his. And here's just one more thing that makes him look like the king. He's been anointed, he's got an army, he's got people following, now he's got the palace, now he's got the throne. He's in in Jerusalem and it's his. And and Hushai comes to him and he begins to ingratiate himself to him. He begins to pretend like he's on his side. And at first Absalom's a little bit suspicious, but we'll see next week uh, that he listens to him. In fact, what's interesting is in chapter 18, there's a civil war that's coming, but in chapter 17, there's this war council, and it's actually in that war council where the, where the battle's actually decided. Before the battle even begins, it's already been decided. Really interesting. Anyway, so uh, Ahithophel begins to give counsel to Absalom, and he gives two pieces of advice to him. It tells him to do two things. The second we'll look at next week, but the first is what closes down chapter 16. And Ahithophel tells Absalom, take your father's concubines up on the roof and have sex with them. That's what he tells him to do. This is evil, to be clear. This is one more king taking things that don't belong to him. This is an act of destruction. This is is evil. And Ahithophel is supposedly a man of God who gives God's counsel to people. But beneath it all, It's a political move. Because by doing this, the people will know that that Absalom's ties with David is irreparable. Like, this is the final straw. This is the break in the relationship. Right now, there exists this fake peace between father and son. They haven't actually met yet. They haven't actually confronted each other yet. They pretended like everything is all right and slid things under the rug and never dealt with stuff. But now, if if Absalom is to do this, everybody will know there is no compromise between the two of these ever again. This relationship is done. It's broken, and it's up to the people to choose which side they'll be on. So, in order to secure his side even further, Absalom does this thing, this horrible, evil thing. And in doing that, he fulfills the curse of 2 Samuel 12. I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. From the spot where David stood, looking out and seeing Bathsheba, the wife of another man who he took, is the same spot where Absalom takes his wife. This aspect of the curse reaches its finality, its conclusion. The other part of the curse, though, the sword that doesn't depart from the house, that will continue. And, and I want to say this morning as we, as we transition and transition towards, towards the conclusion that, that hope is coming. Like hope is dawning in chapter 17, but even from a larger perspective, hope is dawning. And, and hope is realized in the better king of Jesus. Because this son of David, son of God, came. He lived a life that David or I couldn't live, But he goes into exile. See, David, he he exiles himself to flee from Absalom. From Jerusalem down uh, the the, the hillside of Jerusalem, up the, the, the hillside of the Mount of Olives with head covered, weeping all the way, going off into exile. Jesus makes that same trip in reverse in Luke 18 and he starts going up the Mount of Olives and down, weeping over Jerusalem as he goes towards his exile in the city, where he's arrested and he's tried and he's taken out of the city and killed. And he falls under the sword. The last one to do so, he falls under the sword. And the curse of sin that hangs over you and hangs over me, what we deserve, falls on Jesus. And the wrath of God poured out on him And in that moment, he is exiled from the very presence and relationship of God. And he has no one there to help bear the burden with him. And he has no friend and he has no disciple. And he is all alone under the sword, taking our curse so that we can go free. Hope is dawning. And for us, we need to remember that what Jesus did for us at the cross, the punishment for sin is gone. And when God raised him from the dead and he ascended, he sent his spirit to live in you and now you have power over sin. However, our king is enthroned in heaven and our king is enthroned in our heart. If you're a believer in him, we still await the day where he comes back and he becomes king over everything. And while we wait, we recognize we are still in the presence of sin, and it isn't a real enemy in a real world and culture around us, and it is within us, within our flesh and in our desires and within our fears, and the presence of sin is our reality, and it, it takes shape in how we lead and how we follow. What will we do with that? If last week was how do we follow sinful leaders, then and the question this week is, how do we lead sinful people? And I, and I brought this up last week to address our young people. Our college students have come back. Grateful that you're back. I think this is a timely thing. There are things that I wish I had learned in my 20s that I did not learn until my late 30s. And how to follow a king you do not respect or you do not trust. How you follow a, a, in a relationship where... where where your leader is broken and fallen and messed up and not be an Absalom. Young people, you, you're in a situation right now, you're in a phase of life right now where there's gonna be a lot more following than leading, but that will change. That will change, and, and you're going to become leaders, and think about the context in which that might happen. That might happen in the workplace, and you might ascend the ladder, and you might be people's bosses and then more people's bosses. You might own your own business. You might be the one that's, that's signing people's paychecks. You might go for public office and find yourself in, in a government position, leading people. You might be a teacher, and your job is to lead and to teach young minds, or you might be a parent. You might, your leadership contacts might be the family, and you'll have these little eyes looking up to you for guidance, whatever the context of your leadership is, how will you lead? Will you be an Absalom? Or will you be a Saul? Will you be a David? Hopefully maybe more like Jesus. How will you lead? And so here's three questions to pose to you as you consider the kind of leaders that you will become. And for the rest of us, maybe the kind of leaders you are, First question is this By what right will you lead? By what right? Like, where will your authority come from? What will your authority be founded on? By what right will you lead? Um, Saul's right to lead came the elders of Israel came to Samuel and said, We want a king. We don't want God to be king, but we want a king like all the other nations have. And God said, Well, there's Saul. He's a handsome guy. And Saul was appointed king. And and, and he did okay for a while, but the the problem with Saul was that he feared people more than he feared God, and so he sinned. But his leadership was of of man. Absalom, on the other hand, he looked at his father David and didn't like him and didn't trust him and didn't respect him, and he says, well, I'll be the better king. And he self-appointed to rule. He anointed himself. He gathered his army. He marched on Jerusalem. This was was a man who said, I'm I'm king because I want to be. It was, it was a rule that was based on human authority, human right. But what about David? Anointed king had to wait 10 years on the run before it ever actually happened. He didn't take leadership. He waited for God to give it to him. And when his leadership was threatened, he didn't hold on tight to it, let the death group. He let it go. And if, if God was going to replace him, then so be it. Is your leadership, is it, is it of man or is it of God? You ever heard of the, the C's of leadership? Very C, like, like the four C's of leadership or whatever. Um, if you Google it, there's like 15. Apparently, like in, in the business world, um, every leadership trait begins with the letter C. So there's lots of them. Um, but uh, people will look to those leadership traits and they say, because I have those leadership traits, I should be a leader right? Uh, we have a leadership document called the five C's of leadership. And so uh, on, on that list, one is, is character. And so you might look at it and say, well, I have the character of a leader, therefore I should lead, right? I have, um, I, I have a strong sense of justice. I have a good work ethic. Um, I, uh, I'm a great organizer. I, you know, wh- whatever it is, like I have, I have a, 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 the characteristics of a, of a great leader, or you might say, well, I have the chemistry of a good leader. Like I, I have uh, the ability to, to relate to people and to get people to, to join my cause and to, uh, to, 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 you know, cast my vision or whatever. I have the, the chemistry to do that. Or you might say, well, um, I have the, the capacity to lead. Like I have, I have the time and I have, um, uh, you know, I, I don't stress out very easily. So, you know, emotionally I have the capacity to deal with all sorts of difficult stuff. Or, or I have the financial capital. To, to start a business and, and lead. Or, or you, might, you might say it's competency. I'm a competent person. You know, I have the education that I've worked hard for and studied hard for. I have the experience. I have, I have gifting and I have talent. I have the competency in order to lead. And so you would point to these things and say, because I have the C's. But see, uh, on our leadership document, there's a, there's a fifth one and it's called calling. And essentially, it's the question. By what right do you lead? Where did it come from? By whose authority? Were you called by man? Were you called by yourself? Were you called by God? Were you calling? Now, sometimes we don't look to the five C. Sometimes we look to other things. Like we say, well, I have the right gender to lead. Or I have the right family background to lead. Or, you know, I have the right education. Um, I have... I, don't know. I, have, I have financial capital, so that's a right to lead. Like you might look at these things and say based on these things, from a human perspective, I can lead. But is that God's form of leadership? Um, how do you know if your leadership is of, of God or of man? How do you know? I think when, when your leadership is, is of man, what you find is either a very arrogant person or a very insecure person and those are two sides of the same coin, pride. Um, But to to this issue of insecurity, uh, Gene Edwards uh, writes this and um, I pointed to his book before and I may even have quoted this book before, I should really remember what I preach. but um, Gene Edwards writes this, rules were invented by leaders so they could go to bed early Men who speak endlessly on authority only prove they have none. And kings who make speeches about submission only betray twin fears in their hearts. They are not certain they are really true leaders sent of God, and they live in moral fear of a rebellion. See, if your leadership comes from man, then you find yourself constantly reminding people of your title. If your leadership comes from man, then you need to remind people of your place, Like you you have to remind people. You have to point it out and you have to make up rules and policies and regulations. But a leader of God holds leadership with an open hand. Leadership with an open hand. What is your right to lead? Where does it come from? By what right? David held his authority with an open hand. Second, will you love the people you lead? Leadership isn't given by God for the leader. Authority is given by God for the people that are supposed to be led. As a leader, will you love the people that you lead? Will your concern be for them or will it be for you? And considering the context, consider some verses with me. If, if your context is church leadership, whether that's overall elder or house church leader or discipleship leader or maybe um, Uh, a a servant team lead. Hebrews 13, 17, which says leaders are to keep watch over souls and will therefore have to give an account of their leadership. What a huge responsibility that is. If you were to to recognize that leadership means keeping watch over another person's soul and having to be accountable to God for that, you had better love that person. Right? Secondly, secondly, If the context of your leadership is is the workplace, Ephesians 6, 9, which warns not to threaten those you lead, but remember that in God's sight there's no partiality between you and them. Now, the context of that verse is slaves and masters, but it translates pretty well to bosses and employees and sometimes the attitudes that exist between them. Right, for for, for a boss to threaten an employee, and, and they usually do that with what? With sticks and carrots, right? Follow me, get the carrot. Don't follow me, get the stick. It's a form of threatening. And, and what, what Paul is saying there is that God in God's eyes, there's no partiality between the two of you. The boss is not better. The boss is not better. Do you love the people that you lead in a workplace? Um, if the, the context is government, 1 Peter 2.14, which says that your role is to ensure justice by punishing evil and praising those who do good. Your job is to do justice. Make sure that justice is carried out for the sake of your people. To not withhold justice. Like So much of the Old Testament is God addressing uh, the Israelites' leadership and how they did not defend the people and how they did not carry out justice for the poor and the powerless and the weak and the people in the bottom. If you are, are by God's grace, put into a position of political authority, will you love your people to ensure that they have justice? And will they be praised when they do the just thing. Next, the the context of family. Ephesians 6.4 says, don't provoke your children to anger. Colossians 3.20 says, don't provoke your kids in a way that leads to discouragement and hopelessness. As you lead your kids, the the reality is you could idolize their future. You, You could desire for them to attain certain things or to become a certain kind of Person or, or or have this great, I don't know this, this, this great future, but it's, but it's all to make you look good. And in order to make them be the people that you're envisioning them to be, what you might say or do to them that ultimately feels to them like it's uh, provoking them to anger, like it's discouraging, like it's hopeless, like you have a standard for them that they know they could never attain. Will you, will you love the people you lead? You see, you can love the people you lead or you can use them. Either, either you will love them and you will promote them towards God's kingdom or you will use them in order to be, make your kingdom. You'll use people like objects if you don't love them. Will you love them? Lastly, will you cover your weaknesses or will you repent of them? You know, Saul, he, he lived under this, this fear of, of man. And so he sinned against God. And when Samuel comes to confront him, he's got a laundry list of things as excuses for, for why he did what he did or that it wasn't really all that bad. Try to cover up his sin. Um, Absalom, on the other hand, um, he, he, he's self-righteous through the whole thing. And he looks at the death of Amnon as, as totally justifiable, that it wasn't like uh, a, a, a vendetta. It wasn't vengeance to kill his brother Amnon. It was the righteous thing to do. So much so that what he, he demands to have a, an audience with King David saying, if I've done wrong, then prove it. And really what he's essentially saying is, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything David, on the other hand, at first he covers, but when confronted, he confesses and he repents. David Dittenberg talked about this when we walked through chapters 11 and 12. Like, this is in Scripture because David wanted it there. He he published a psalm that he wanted publicly sung about his sin. Could you write a song about your sin and have it sung from this platform? In Psalm 51, he writes, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil. He confesses. He, he Instead of covering his weaknesses and his sins, he brings it to light. And confesses it. You know, for, uh, for us as leaders... James says to us, we're we're to confess our sins to one another. He's talking to the church. Why would we expect the church to confess sin if its leaders never do? For you, if if you're a business owner or or, or in the workplace and you're a super, why would you expect your people to admit wrong if you never do? Imagine imagine a government that admitted wrong. (laughs) If you're a teacher in the classroom, why would you expect your your students to admit wrong if you never do? Parents, how do we cultivate a life of repentance in our children to make it safe for them to know that they've sinned and can find forgiveness? We model it. How do we expect our kids to confess if if we as parents never do? Will you confess your weaknesses or will will you justify them, sweep them in the rug? Will you repent of them? Look, here's the reality about me. Any right to lead I have is God's. Any gifting you think I might have is God's. Any... Character, chemistry, competency, any of that? It comes from God. What you really need to know about me is that there's this war in me between the spirit of God that wants me to point people to Jesus and my flesh that wants me to point people to me. And I want affirmation and I want the attaboy And I I crave your eyes looking at me and your ears listening to me because I want your hearts to a certain degree. I want and I want because I want to build my own kingdom because there's a heart of Absalom in me. And that heart of Absalom is at war with the heart of Christ. And I pray that God would transform that in me, and I pray that he would take that away from me. And he's doing it, but he's not doing it at the speed I would like him to. And it's so slow. It's so slow. The reality is, is like, you need to know, when you listen to me, what kind of man I am. I am deeply, deeply sinful. And yet, by God's grace, loved but here's the thing. What Paul said to the Corinthian church, follow me as I follow Christ. If I don't follow Christ, don't follow me. Paul, or Peter, when he was arrested at the beginning of Acts for, for healing and for preaching Christ, and the Sanhedrin say, don't preach Christ anymore, and they release him, and what does he do? He goes out and he preaches Christ. And they bring him back. We told you not to preach in that name. And he says, What? He says, I must obey God rather than man. See, there's a time when we do, we submit to human broken, fallen authority because it fits within God's greater plan. But when human authority clashes with God's rule, then you choose God. You choose God. Always choose him. Always follow him. And What what I hope you take away from today is, 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 is three things. First, David, he was under the the pressure of the curse, but he was holding on to the promise, and that's hope. If you're a leader or if you're going to be a leader, you need hope. And for you as a leader, that hope, it comes with knowing that despite your failings, despite your mistakes, Christ is still on the throne, and his kingdom is still coming, and that you didn't break the promise. You didn't wreck it. You didn't ruin it. Despite your failures, you need hope. The second thing, community. You need community. You need, as a leader, you need people to bear up that weight with you, to help carry that load with you. The leaders who lead from isolation, those are the people that are deeply, deeply insecure. Because they're afraid that if they're honest about what's going on, people will find out how messed up they are, and they won't follow them. There's this insecurity there, like... For me, parenting is huge. Maybe it is for you as parents too. Like, parenting is the most difficult thing I've ever done. And my kids look at me sometimes and they're like, you're not doing this well. Like, I know there's parenting books out there, but there's not a parenting book that's been written on my particular kid's and I struggle with knowing what to do and how to raise them, and I fail, and I don't want to tell people about that. I'm deeply self-conscious and insecure about how bad of a parent I am. And yet, if I can share that with the people in my house church, if they see me, and how I talk to my kids sometimes the way I shouldn't, if they see me in that role as a father when we go camping, and the masks come down after 48 hours or so, then the help is there. Like, community is so important for us as leaders. Lastly, grace, and here's the thing about grace if you're in leadership. Grace is not something you demand. Particularly if you lead in a Christian context, what I've seen so often is Christian leaders speaking to Christian followers saying, you have to give me grace because we're Christians. Grace isn't something you, you demand. You can ask for forgiveness. You can work towards reconciliation. You can make things right. You can't demand people to give you grace. In the end of the day, they may not. And you know what? Your mistakes may create Absaloms who come after your leadership. Grace comes from God. Grace is knowing that at the end of the day, whether your leadership context thrives or it's a disaster at the end of the day, God still loves you. And he doesn't love you anymore or any less. Like whether your company takes off or whether it falls, right? Whether you get reelected or not. Like wh- whether your kids make, you know, that you're teaching in the classroom, whether they, uh, they, they pass the grade or whatever, doesn't matter. As parents, if your kids don't become the rocket scientist, or even if they'd not become the drug addict, God's not going to love you any less or any more. Grace to live in that. I'll close with this. I know I've gone a long time. You may have heard me say throughout this series that, that Samuel is, um, it's about the rise and fall of leaders. Like first Samuel is about the rise and fall of Saul. 2nd Samuel 1 through 12 is about the rise and fall of David. 2nd Samuel 13 through 18 is about the rise and fall of Absalom. But looking at it through another lens, you could say that Samuel is a book about the rise, fall, and rise of one contrasted with the rise and fall of two others. You see, Absalom's going to fail the insurrection and David will reclaim the throne. And the ark of David's story is rise, fall, Rise, but when he rises again, he will be very broken as a leader. I think that is the preferred way to lead. I think that broken leaders, broken leaders know where their authority comes from. Unbroken leaders, claim it's of them. Broken leaders, broken leaders know how to repent. Unbroken leaders cling to self-righteousness. Unbroken leaders, well, they experience pain. And they know empathy. And they know how to love better. Unbroken leaders know how to love, broken, broken leaders know how to love, unbroken leaders, excuse me, unbroken leaders just know how to use people. And when it comes down to it, God uses broken leaders to fix the world. Unbroken leaders just mess it up more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the hope that you you give in the community that you provide us with for those of us who lead. I pray that we would lean into that. I pray that, that what would drive us is that hope and that community and that grace. God, I pray that we would be people who hold our leadership with open hands. God, I pray for myself that that if you today should decide that you have something else for the people of this church, that I would let this go. God, I pray for um, I pray that for for our leaders and that that we would submit to you and love like you, that we would treat people the way that you treat people, see people the way that you see them, love them, not use them. And I pray, Father, that we would be quick to repent. Quick to repent. In the name of Jesus, amen.